if you've been with us for a period of time, you know that we're walking through the book of Matthew right now. Um, for if this is your first time here at Mill City, we just preach book by book. So the Lord puts a, a book on, um, on Steve's heart, and we start at chapter 1, and we just start preaching until we're at the end. And then the Lord puts something else on our hearts to move. We trust that... Um, Every, every time that we're up here that the Lord has each person in a very spiritually unique place to, uh, to just hear whatever it is that the Lord has for each one of you, for each one of us. I got preached at quite a bit this week. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Steve closed the book, uh, closed the chapter on, uh, on chapter two. We open up to chapter three this week, and with it comes a bit of white space. What do I mean by that? Well, we close the book in chapter 2 with Jesus as an infant coming back uh, from Egypt, and we open the book on chapter 3, and we get introduced to John the Baptist as, uh, as a young man, as we think probably mid-20s, so there's about two decades of time that passes in between chapters 2 and 3. One of the amazing benefits of having three Gospels is each one of them emphasizes different things. So as we put together a little character study on John this morning, we are going to be kind of hopping between the Gospels, spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. Um, so I'm super excited for what the Lord has. But for now, we're going to start off with the, uh, the Scripture, verses 4 today, starting in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is, who, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these very stones can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water for repentance, but he, but after me, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
Well, once again, right at the very beginning of our, of our scripture verse this morning, we see in kind of in alignment with one of the overarching themes of the book of Matthew is uh, as soon as he introduces a character, as soon as he introduces a story, he immediately goes to the Old Testament and says, this is happening as it was foretold by the prophet Isaiah back in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that here's John, right? I just want to make sure that we're all clear that this John is who Isaiah was talking about when he said, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight your paths. This is the sixth actual prophecy that, that Matthew has actually put in his book so far. The first half to two-thirds of chapter one is the genealogy of Jesus. So in just over a chapter and a half, he's continuously plugging these prophecies into his text because he's make, continuing to make that case that Jesus is the Messiah. And even though we're not talking about Jesus specifically today, he continues to make the case for that, the, that arch of a theme that all of these things are happening in accordance with the prophets of old. He's making the case to the Jews that all of these things have been foretold and are now coming to pass because the Messiah is at hand. We'll jump into baptism next week. Steve has um, something specific he wants to share. He, uh, we've, we've had that, we've talked about baptism a number of times. We'll do that again next week. So I thought instead of trying to make something out of just these couple verses, we're going to take a few minutes and talk about John today. We're going to talk a little bit about who he is, what his message was, and then we're going to land on a little bit of his character. Because John has a very unique story. So what do we know about John the baptizer? What do we know about this character? Well, first, we know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody, uh, there's always this perception that, you know, there's this 400 years of silence, would they call it, between the white space, the Old and the New Testament. And a, and a lot of times we, we think that the first supernatural thing that has happened in this New Testament world is the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, heralding the coming birth of Jesus. But actually, the first thing that we see is Gabriel visiting Zechariah, who is John's dad. Zechariah was a priest in Israel, and we see this in his conversation with Zechariah. But the angel, Gabriel, said this to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you were to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. 
Then we see in the story of Mary meeting Elizabeth after she finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus. Mary, the, the Gabriel comes to Mary. He tells the story, what's going to happen. Mary immediately gets up and goes to visit her, her, uh, her cousin Elizabeth. And then this happens. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she explained, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is this child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill her promises to her. This is the only recorded um, instance where the Holy Spirit actually came upon someone before they were born. So all throughout the Old Testament, unlike in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit, um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has had the ability to come and, and, and interact with each one of us, took up residence within each and every one of us. But in the Old Testament, he was limited to stories um, in, in Judges, in the story of Moses, in David, oftentimes it would say, and the Spirit of the Lord came to rest on a specific individual for a specific purpose or a specific time. Well, we are living in New Testament, but we're still living pre-death and resurrection of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit comes and rests on John before he's even born. John was also born under very unique circumstances. So John's dad was Zachariah. He was a priest um, at the time. And uh, it came by lot that Zachariah's division of priests were to uh, serve the Lord as the priests in the temple during this time. Now, Zachariah is old. And Elizabeth is old, well beyond childbearing years. Okay, so... He is, uh, he, they've lived without, a, uh, without any children their entire life. Um, Zechariah goes to uh, serve as the priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the, assembler, all the assemblies were worshiping outside. The angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, he was startled and gripped with fear, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Foretells the, um, foretells the coming birth of, uh, of, of John. He will bring many people uh, to Israel, to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord and in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. 
Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, after this time, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord had done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So Gabriel comes to Zechariah as he's serving in the temple. He says, you're going to have a son. And he goes, <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, I'm a little old for this. And last I checked, Elizabeth <laughs> couldn't have a baby when she was in childbearing years, let alone now. Now, I don't know about you, but if an angel came to me and said, Hey, Jay, Becky's going to have another kid. She's out there. She can probably hear me right now. I don't know that I would argue with them. <laughs> And nor would I be in disbelief that that might happen. Now, we're in a little bit different circumstances. But nonetheless, I'd be like, man, okie doke. This dude's the, he's the priest, one of the priests. He's lived his whole life consecrated to the Lord. And he's like, yeah, that can't happen. And Gabriel's like, oh, but it's going to. And because you didn't believe me, I'm going to keep you silent for the remaining time. Now, I just thought, man, that just saved Zechariah a whole bunch of hassle and trouble. He couldn't get himself into any trouble while Elizabeth is pregnant with this baby. But I don't think that's the ultimate point. I think Jesus is trying to prove a point here. We fast forward a little bit to verse 37, the actual birth of, of, uh, of John. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, his name is to be John. They said to her, there's, no, there's not even anybody among your relatives that has that name. They made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. <clears throat> Again, we have to remember that nothing supernatural has happened for generations. And now all of a sudden, there's angel. Now all of a sudden, Zechariah the priest is unable to talk. We know that the Holy Spirit has now come to rest on an individual again. That means something to the people of Israel. And now this baby is born, and his dad can speak, and everybody's thinking, this is it. Something is going to happen. It has to. Nothing has happened in years. And if people only knew 
what was to come. This visit from Gabriel was just the single stone that was tossed into the lake. And the ripple effect was going to be something that would change the entire world. And Jesus coming was something that was going to rock the world so terribly that somebody had to go before him. And this is John. So that transitions us to his purpose and his message. Well, there's three things that kind of struck my mind as I thought about what was John's purpose and what was his message. We have the prophecies about him. We have a promise that was made in the conversation between Gabriel and Zechariah about him. And then there was John's actual message when he started out in his ministry. There's actually two prophecies about John in the Old Testament. The first one comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And it's a, it says this, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. The second one is from Malachi chapter 3. It says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So John's purpose is to go out before Jesus and preach a message preparing their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, right? So everybody has effectively been living according to their own rules, okay? That's kind of where we end up. Rome is in charge. Everybody's living their own lives. There's this contingency of Jews that continue to remain. Um, the priests and all of that is still in place, but really everybody's doing their own thing. And their hearts, the hearts are really not towards the Lord in any significant way when we come on the scene here in the, in the New Testament. And if Jesus' message is going to be received in any way, then somebody has to go before and preach repentance, preach baptism, and kind of just set the stage. One, one time after another, I'm sure John said, you need to get yourself straight because there's somebody coming that is going to rock this world and you have no idea what it's going to be like. You need to make straight your path. I'm going to go ahead and prepare the way before him. In Ma and, uh, in, there's a promise in the conversation between Gabriel and Zechariah that uh, goes like this. And if you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the promise of what John's purpose is going to be to Zechariah. Once again, we see that the Lord calls him out as a prophet. In Scripture, he's called out by, um, <clears throat> he's going to have the power of Elijah. He's going to have an authority that comes with his prophetic message that's more than 
um, just a normal prophet would have. But the sole purpose is to prepare the hearts of everybody that would come to him to, to, to start to turn their hearts. You are sinful. The law is telling you that. You see it. I'm pointing it out. And you need to start turning your heart because the one that's going to come before me is going to baptize with fire. And your heart needs to be prepared for the message that he's going to bring. Because we know throughout scripture in the New Testament that Jesus' message was not easy to palate. In today's culture, so often preachers, good preachers, try to, try to frame Jesus, try to frame the kingdom in a way that's palatable and that people are, are understanding of it, they're saved by it, and they want to continue to come back and participate in the body. And, that, and that's, that's awesome. Jesus, when he was here, was more than content with saying hard things. And he was more than content with 12 disciples. And if this entire nation was going to be prepared for that kind of a message, then they needed some help. And that was John. The people went out to meet him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees showed up on the scene, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do you not think that and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders had spent their entire lives standing on the fact that nothing can happen to us. We're the Jews. We're, the, we're, the cho we're Israel. We're the chosen nation. God's not going to mess with us. We're his people. And John goes as far to say, don't think that you can stand on that because God could raise up more is more Israelites from these very stones. And let's be clear, his target is on everybody, and the axe is already there, and he's ready to cut it down unless it produces good fruit. That's the precursor to the message that Jesus would bring. I baptize you for repentance. Turn from your sins, but he who comes after me is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Lest you're not clear on what he meant by the axe, Jesus the Messiah is coming, and he has his winnowing fork, and he will distinguish between the wheat and and the chaff. And his wheat he will gather into the barn, and the chaff 
will be burned with unquenchable fire. I talk about all the time in growth track, there's a, there's a specific way to look at scripture and it's what did that mean to the original hearers, but what's the underlying principle, right? So if we're still unclear for just a moment, this has nothing to do with wheat and chaff. Now, I don't know what that means. I eat wheat. Um, I eat bread. Um, <clears throat> I am not a farmer. I spent about I spent about uh, 45 minutes on uh, Becky's grandpa's farm, and in that time, I think her grandpa told me three times I didn't belong there. He was absolutely right. And um, I don't, we don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know what that means. But what's the underlying principle? And just to be clear, in this case, the wheat are those that would confess the name of Jesus and accept his message and the chaff are those that wouldn't. Jesus will be distinguishing between the two. And the wheat he will put in his barn. And the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the pre-message to the message. His character. I put this last because I'm so excited about this piece of who John is. He has a hard message. He was born of unique circumstance. He was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. But his sole purpose was not his own. His sole purpose was to proclaim the coming Messiah. I believe that there's individuals in Scripture that we're to model our lives after. If we go back to the Old Testament, I, I love using the, the great King David as an example, right? It's not because he commanded a thousand troops or the way that he made his way to the throne or really even the calling that he had on his life. It was this. The Lord said, he's a man after my own heart. When I get to the end of my life, I would love for people to see me and say, man, that Jay, he, he was really a man after God's own heart. I see that in John. There's a humility in John's life. that sets him apart. There's a story before John gets put in prison that John and Jesus are doing ministry in relatively close proximity to, to one another. Okay? And it says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming to be baptized. Hey, we're going to go there. There's water and there's people that want to get baptized. Let's do that. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Well, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everybody's going to him. 
I can only imagine that scene. Hey, teacher, that guy you were talking about, not to mention it's Jesus, of course, but that guy that you were talking about, that guy that you baptized, that you continue to testify about, well, he's over there, and he's doing the same thing you are. Well, what's the deal? I think you should go talk to him, because he probably has better things to do than just be baptizing people, because that's your job. You are John the Baptist, aren't you? To this, John replied, man, this, this got me this week. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am the one sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and now it's complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John spent his life preparing the way for Jesus to speak into people's lives, to give his message. And now he's doing it. Jesus is in the midst of his ministry, changing lives and drawing people unto himself. And John's response is just right, I, I can't, is right at the heart of where the Lord wants us today. It's not about you. It's not about me. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. John recognized his purpose. He's the attendant to the bridegroom. And now the bride has recognized the bridegroom. And his joy, his joy is now complete now that Jesus is in the midst of his ministry. I must decrease and he must increase. The second thing that struck me about his character this week was that he was set apart. We don't see this in, the, in, in Matthew's, uh, he didn't, we don't see this in Matthew's text, but in, in Luke and in John, we see that at some point in John's upbringing, he actually goes out into the wilderness. We see that he wore camel's hair and ate locusts and honey and all of those things, right? But he actually withdrew himself from society in order to consecrate himself. He spent all of his time leading up to his ministry, spending time with the Lord, drawing close to the Lord, seeking the Lord, and removing himself from the distractions and the evils of the world in that day. In his book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby quotes um, an evangelist, Henry Varley. And he says this, The world has yet to see what the Lord will do with a man fully and wholly consecrated to him.
I think for just a moment in John's story, we see a man who was holy and, con- and fully consecrated to the Lord. Had he not been, the flesh of the world would have gotten in at some point. Now, we don't, we don't see all of the things that there is to see, but the, God tells us the things that we need to see. And, uh, and while I believe that John never lost faith, one of the most beautiful things that I see in him, in his stories, is later on in the story, John gets falsely imprisoned. He never gets a trial. His head is given to somebody as a gift. And just his head is given to somebody as a gift as he sat in prison. But before that happens, he's sitting in this cell. And he wonders, was it, was, was that the Messiah? So he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus, and he just asks a simple question. Are you who you say you are? And Jesus responds with, eyes are being opened, mute mouths are speaking, people are being raised from the dead. And that's all the confirmation John needs to know that everything that he did and everything that he was was worth it. And as John lived out this life of humility and consecration, there's an accolade that he's given. And I don't even know, I would say that he probably didn't even know that Jesus said this. But in the same story, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this question. And Jesus has this crowd with him. And, uh, and he answers the disciples in the way that he does. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, let me tell you about this guy named John. Not only was he a prophet, but he had the power of Elijah. He credits many, he credits John with the lives of many of the people that were standing in that crowd. If it weren't for John laying down the groundwork, sowing those seeds, many of those people would probably not be in that crowd at that time. He calls John a prophet and confirms that he is the one that the prophecy in Malachi was fulfilling in that he was the messenger to be sent ahead of him. And then Matthew 11.11 says this, Truly I tell you, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is yet greater than he. No one that has ever lived born of woman is greater than John. The worship team can come. So how do we translate that to today? Well, personally, like I said about David, now this has already been said about John, but I would love for, again, to live, to, to, to be used in such a way by the Lord that at the end of my life, 
Jesus would say something like, man, there wasn't anybody greater than him. I mean, he loves each and every one of us. And he's given each and every one of us a, a very specific job to do. John recognized it. He embraced it. And regardless of where that path took him, he was, he was right in the will of God the whole way. So often it's hard to model our lives after, you know, to want to model our lives after Jesus. I can only imagine what that was like for Jesus' brothers or anything like that. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Well, that's just, sorry. You know, he's perfect. He's God. That's fine. But, but David and John, he's human. And it was the beauty of his humanity that actually spurred Jesus' comment about how great he was. Because he's sitting in that cell going, man, I hope it was all worth it. God, tell me it was all worth it. And it was confirmed. And then Jesus says, he's the greatest born among, born among all men. That's what I would like to strive for. To live out my life in such a way that I hear, well done, you've run the race. You were a man after my own heart. There's no one greater. Now, some might be sitting in the room today saying, well, that, Jay, all of that's great. But I have no idea what you're talking about. John set the path before Jesus to change people's hearts so they could receive the gospel. The beauty of the scriptures, the beauty specifically of the gospels, is it's all about Jesus. John's life was all about Jesus. John spent his life pointing at Jesus, and every time somebody would come to him, he'd say, no, he's the one. Well, are you the Messiah? No, 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 not me. He's the one. Well, John, they're doing the things that you did. No, no, he's greater because he's the one. And if you're sitting here today, and you've not heard that, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. It was through him and because of him and of him that everything that ever has been and ever will be was. And he took the sin and the wrath that we deserved and he took it upon himself. And in exchange, we get eternal life. And it's predicated only on the fact that we trust him, that he is who he says he was, and that we acknowledge him as the savior of the world. And if you're here this morning, and you've not, acknowledge that if you've not made Jesus that person in your life I got really good news 
You're just one prayer away from a right relationship with the great creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, that's a question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior? And if you feel that tug, that's the power of the Holy Spirit on your heart. And he's saying, today's the day. So if that's you, I would, we, we would love to pray with you. Just a sign of an upraised hand. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Amen. 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 Well, there's another group that I want to talk to you real quick. Maybe at one point in time, you believed all of this, but you find yourself today not so sure. Maybe you walked away, maybe you were driven away, maybe something happened that put you at odds with this whole idea of Jesus. And you, you think that you've gone too far, that you can't come back. I want to be so clear today that no one is outside of the reach of God. And if you're sitting here today and you know that you need to recommit your life to him, you need to, you need to re-up and say, Lord, I need you back at the steering wheel of my life. Just a sign of an upraised hand, we would love to pray with you. Amen. Well, Lord God, we thank you and we praise you this morning. Lord, I thank you for John. Lord, I thank you for who he was, the lessons that his life can teach us, the devotion that he had to you, to see out the mission that he was given unto death. Lord, I pray that in each one of our hearts we would look to him as a model of what it's like to be fully and wholly devoted to you. Lord, let our, let our hearts and our will align with that this morning. Lord, let the world see what you can do with a body that's fully and wholly consecrated and devoted to you. So we thank you in advance for the amazing things that we know that you're going to do over the coming days and weeks and months. And I pray right now that you would do amazing things in these next few minutes. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.